Welcome to episode six, where we talk about the lavender ceiling, coming out to your network, and socks. Welcome to This Shit Works, your weekly no-nonsense guide to networking your way to more friends, more adventures, and way more success with your host, Julie Brown. Here we go. You've heard of the glass ceiling, right? Raise your hand if you haven't. I think we all have. The glass ceiling refers to the systematic gender discrimination of women in male-dominated industries that limits their abilities to be promoted or rise within the ranks of their companies. This terminology is pretty well known, but I'm guessing you've never heard of the lavender ceiling. I hadn't either until I started my research for this podcast. The lavender ceiling exists when a person who identifies as LGBT encounters more resistance toward promotion or moving upward in a company than a straight person would. This is not a new concept. A May 17, 1999 article titled Workplace Diversity, Gays Confront Lavender Ceiling has an excerpt that reads, Each day, thousands of employees throughout California wrestle with whether to come out of the closet Some fear that revealing their sexual orientation will bring down the lavender ceiling, which they say can spell the difference between a promotion and stagnation. In case you missed the date, this article was 1999, more than 21 years ago, two decades. To this day, professionals struggle with the decision to come out, to bring their full, entire selves to their professions. Are some professions more accepting than others? You bet. So what happens if you work in one of these less progressive professions? We know that business is all about building relationships, and we can't do that if we aren't being honest to ourselves and those in our network. If bringing your full self to your career in your network means coming out, what does coming out in your network look like? Especially if you work in a less progressive, more good old boys kind of profession. My guest today is my friend, Brian Furs. Brian is the Vice President of Leasing for WS Development, the largest New England-based retail developer, ranking 32nd overall on the ICSC's top 100 retail developers. Brian has been in the commercial real estate industry for more than 20 years. Prior to joining WS Development, Brian held positions with Crosspoint Associates, Linear Realty, and Federal Realty. In 2004, after six years working in commercial real estate and building his network within that industry, He came out to his colleagues and his network. I've invited Brian here to talk about what that process was like, how his relationships have changed and developed through that process, and how individuals and companies can be better advocates for the LGBTQ community. This interview and its contents are brought to you by Layer Cumming. Layer Cumming, a division of Cumming, is a widely respected owner advisor that offers strategic, hands-on guidance to owners, developers, and institutions in the New England region. For more information, please visit LairCumming.com. Now on to the interview. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Julie. Brian, for the listeners that may not know, can you tell us a little bit about the culture and or demographics within the corporate real estate industry? Sure. The good news, I think, about the corporate real estate industry is that it's changed dramatically since I started in it in 1999. Uh, In 1999, when you sat in the back of a convention hall, you saw a bunch of white, short-haired men. 
And they were all in their 40s and 50s, and it was the old boys network. You've made progress in the last 20 years. You have seen a bunch of women come into the industry and change it dramatically in many good ways. And the industry is becoming more colorful, which is good, especially in areas around New York and LA. You're also seeing a lot of investment uh, by minorities in smaller development companies and new retail companies. And, and so the business has gotten much more diverse, but we have a long way to go. We are still one of the light and white businesses, and we certainly have work to do. When you first graduated college and you began your career in this corporate real estate industry that you just described, you hadn't come out yet. Yeah. When I graduated <laughs> from college, I hadn't come out yet and, and spent my first three years in Boston playing around in the neighborhoods of Old Southie and being the Notre Dame boy. And, and so I hadn't come out yet, even personally. I didn't come out until 2001. I forgot you lived in Southie. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I forgot you lived in Southie. I'm just going to chime in here to explain what Southie is for the listeners who might not know. So Southie is the colloquial name for South Boston, which is a mostly Irish working class neighborhood. In the 70s and 80s, infamous mobster James Whitey Bulger ran the streets of Southie. If you've seen the movie Goodwill Hunting, Boondock Saints, Mystic River, The Departed, Gone Baby Gone, you've seen the streets of Southie as they were all shot there. A lot has changed since then. In the past 10 to 15 years, total gentrification has taken over the once perceived unsafe South Boston neighborhood. So back to the interview. You started coming out to friends and family in 2001. Right. Is that when you came out to your professional network as well? No, it was really more of a rolling process that was very, very slow to start. I was dating someone that was able to go by the name Jamie at the time. And so I was able to use a non-specific gender name to cover a lot of stories up. I was slow to come out. In, in our business, uh, when I first came out, I was 25. Most of the people I worked with were family people. They were 40s and 50s, and they didn't have a lot in common with me. To, to, they'd say, how was your weekend? And I'd say it was fine. And that was perfectly sufficient. I started getting into my later 20s and had a long-term relationship and bought a house. It, it started to become much more awkward to not talk about my family life. And it just became harder and harder to play the pronoun game uh, and, and also started to become a little awkward uh, as you start to work with people for a long time. If you don't talk about who you are in your personal life, they wonder what's wrong with you. You and I are friends. You went to Notre Dame. My husband went to Notre Dame. You and I met at a Red Sox Notre Dame alumni event. We became friends. Did I bring a girlfriend? I probably did. No, but I do remember, and I can't remember her name. We went out on your boat. Oh yeah, I know who you're talking about actually. Okay, we went out on your boat and you were <laughs> with somebody and then the next thing I knew you weren't and I said to my husband, I go, what do you think happened between them? He's like, I don't know, I don't care. Yeah, we actually went skiing once too. We, we had a weekend in Vermont. I forgot we had the Fiddlehead apartment in Vermont. We did. How could I forget that? How could I forget that? Okay, yeah. so. I learned you were gay when Chris and I were getting married and we invited you to our wedding and you called Chris and said that you wanted to bring someone to the wedding and we were like, yeah, duh. And you said, I want to bring someone, but I want to bring a man to the wedding. And we were like, okay, great. And that was how we learned that you were gay. But we didn't, it was funny. I, did, I forgot all of those things we had done beforehand. 
Yeah, we had lives before Brian became gay. It was pretty fun. Your wedding is funny. It's a distinct memory because that was one of the many creative ways I've figured out how to try to lightly come out to friends and not have to have a really serious conversation. And then I ended up single by the time you got married. So, you know, was disappointed that there weren't more single gay men at your wedding, candidly. Yeah, I'm sorry. There were, you were the only gay man at our wedding. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Sorry about that. I'll do better <laughs> on my second wedding. <laughs> no, neither um, one of us need one of those, please. I think when people hear so-and-so came out, they think it's a one-time event and it's not. It's an event that happens over and over and over again because you have to come out to a number of different people. What was it like coming out to your professional network and your colleagues? I think what's really interesting about the GLBT community is we're really an invisible minority. So if you're black, if you're a woman, it's generally pretty obvious when you walk in the room that you're not like everybody else. When you're gay or lesbian or bi or transgender, it, you, when you walk in the room, it's not immediately apparent to everybody that you're a member of a minority community. As a result, they make certain assumptions about you and, and you have to make a decision at that point uh, about whether you're going to allow that to stand and be part of the normal club or if you're going to correct the record. The, the challenge is that even as you get more and more comfortable with correcting the record, you have to do it. And so whether it's you're walking into a new job or you're meeting a new client or you're talking to a colleague more in depth way than you have in the past, you find yourself in situations sometimes every day where you have to integrate into a conversation some tidbit that it's either a direct statement of I'm gay or you're trying to figure out a way to use the word partner or husband or some way infer into a conversation so that everybody in the room, okay, now we know, good, we've got it. Uh, but you've got to do it over and over and over again. And, and it's not something that ever stops. You have to do it forever. Which I am making an assumption that that can be exhausting. It can be exhausting. It can be, you know, <laughs> it's certainly not the same as, as giving someone your professional background in, a, in an introduction setting. I think it does get easier with time and certainly society has made it easier and easier to do it. So exhausting might be too strong of a word, but it's a source of anxiety and you never know exactly how someone's going to respond. There have been isolated cases where people have, as a result of me setting the record straight, treated me differently after the fact. So that was going to be my next question. As you were doing this rolling, coming out to people in your network professionally, did you have any negative reactions? Yeah, I haven't had an overt reaction. No one's flipped over a table and stormed out of the room or anything. But uh, I've had people have a dramatic pause that went on for too long. I've had people that have suddenly stopped returning phone calls. That's been very limited. And I actually find those people fascinating that my sexual preference would allow them to choose to not make money. <laughs> but the ones that are the most interesting to me are the people that try to then tell me about all the gay people they know and try to relate to me. Probably that one of the hardest situations I've had was one of my bosses who I had to work with every day and who I'd worked with for many years, when I told him, uh, his immediate reaction was to tell me that he thought my life and my career were gonna be really hard. 
and I found that fascinating. I'm not sure where his, what his context was. I just found it to be a bit insulting that this person responded to me being super honest with them and, and taking this moment of courage and, and sort of turning it around to tell me that my life was going to be more difficult. Candidly, my life has been a hell of a lot easier since I've been honest with people and, and been open about my sexuality. But it did color our relationship. And going forward, any time after that where he had to think about whether or not I should be at a meeting, I, I then had to think about whether he wanted me to not be at the meeting because I was gay. So there have been negative experiences, but generally speaking, Julie, most people, it doesn't even phase them, especially today. If those were your negative experiences, tell me about some really positive experiences where your relationships were strengthened because you were now living your authentic, honest life. My favorite story about that has to be an ICSC or International Council of Shopping Centers uh, next gen event. So a bunch of 30 somethings hanging out, drinking after work. And I distinctly remember walking over to this woman and she was, she's very attractive. And I walked over to her and she immediately responded to me with, caution and we started up a conversation and she said in passing that she was getting divorced and i said oh i'm in the middle of a breakup and she rolled her eyes and i knew exactly why she thought i was hitting on her and trying to get a date and so i laughed and i said but i'm breaking up from a man we've been exceptionally close since i was the officiant at her wedding and we've become great business associates and it was early on in my long coming out journey. And it was so redeeming to have this person just um, absolutely, literally embrace me and become a fast and, and forever friend. But there've been lots of opportunities to talk about that. I've had bosses that have been so appreciative of it and have asked me questions immediately about my family. Generally speaking, it's been an incredibly normal redeeming experience to be able to share my personal life with with professional colleagues your friend that that happened to as a woman who networked for 20 years in a male-dominated industry i understand her reaction to you and then her affinity to you when she realized oh this guy's never gonna hit on me i get it i totally understand it as well I can certainly relate to being a young gay man at a gay bar it's, it's you walk in and everyone turns and it's going to be a long night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens to me less and less now that I'm getting up there in age. Yeah, tell me about it. Throughout my diversity and inclusion series on this podcast, I talk a lot about the power of affinity groups. I was hoping that you would talk a little bit about the affinity groups that you are a part of and the power of that affinity group and what it does for people in the LGBTQ community. So I started getting involved in diversity groups probably three or four years ago with ICSC, again, International Council of Shopping Centers. What, what became immediately apparent to me when I walked in the room was that people didn't understand why I was there. It goes back to the invisible minority comment I made earlier. And generally speaking, in our industry, diversity is seen as people of color uh, and to a lesser extent women. But there's never really any outreach to the GLBT community. It's like it doesn't exist. And while we all need to be working together as subsets of a minority group to improve the general diversity in our industry, I think it's really important for us all to have places to go that allow us to be with people that are like us 
because of who we choose to love or because of what gender we are or what the color of our skin is, because it's just a safe environment. And there are experiences that we all have that no one else could ever understand. And to have people that you know you work with and that have walked your path is really, really powerful when you're when you're having a tough day or something. I found that in a group called Greg in New York, and it stands for Gay Real Estate Group. And I was working in New York a lot for Federal Realty. I had a hotel that was my second home in Long Island. And I heard about this group, and it was a super elite group that had been around since the late 80s. There were only 150 members each year. You have to apply, you have to go to an interview, you have to pay a membership fee but it's a super safe space. And these are people that are super powerful, all CEOs, CFOs, senior vice presidents, vice presidents of huge commercial real estate companies that have nowhere else to really just, or in the past at least, had nowhere else to just be themselves. And um, it's not a place you go to do business or to do deals. You go to meet people that are like you, build professional friendships, and ultimately that likely leads to deal sheet and to new business, but it's really just a safe space to go and be yourself amidst people that do what you do for a living. There's another group in LA called L. Greg, loosely affiliated with Greg. The member that founded L. Greg was part of the Greg Network in New York before he moved to California. He's chosen a totally different kind of group, which is non-exclusive and no membership fee. And it's really just primarily based around networking and, and providing the same mission and the same safe space, but they have a much larger membership. Learning about these two networks just made me really want to have that in Boston, especially after I uh, left federal and wasn't in New York anymore. So uh, I founded B Greg, which is Boston gay real estate group and did it really on a napkin. I found a couple of people that I knew might show up at an event because I knew they were in the business and knew they were gay and also we reached out to L. Greg in New York and, and Greg in New York and had people send out an email to their friends in Boston saying, hey, this guy's getting together a bunch of people to just hang out and have beers. And, and we did. And it was fun. And uh, word spread. And we have about 100 members now. We have four events a year. This is a group that's really important. It, it, it provides a place where we can go. We can talk about our same-sex spouses. We can talk about our adopted children. We can talk about experiences we've had in business that make us feel frustrated because it's they're discriminatory or they're just not comfortable and nobody's going to judge us and they candidly build relationships that become friendships and help get future business done now we're working on chapters in dc chicago dallas uh, atlanta and we're going to keep picking cities until we have all 26 letters of the alphabet before the word greg you mentioned that you were encouraged by the fact that there are people from a lot of different companies attending Brie Greg events, which maybe wouldn't have happened five, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, we had a Christmas party in 2018, and then we had a Christmas party in 2019. And in 2018, four of us who were in the group got our companies to write a $250 check to pay for the party. Immediately after the party, I started getting phone calls about sponsorship uh, from other companies in the industry uh, who wanted to sponsor 2019, which was super exciting. But what I will tell you is that one of the most fascinating parts of this for me has been the construction industry. 
I went to Chicago and they don't even have a great group out there, but I met with some guys out there to talk about starting one and a construction company that I'm not going to name because I don't know if it's appropriate has a $20,000 budget for its gay outreach program. And, and each, each minority group has a similar budget. Uh, and this budget is literally to send people to things like Greg parties and let them go to conventions around the country for minority groups. And the construction industry has completely learned that if it's going to succeed, it needs to embrace people of color, women, GLBT, uh, that if they're going to get the best people, they need to make sure that not only do the people that are in the minority groups feel comfortable working there, but the people that work there that aren't in the minority groups also feel comfortable with those people and that they don't feel awkward and that they understand. It's a fascinating focus of the construction industry that I was so candidly blown away by and surprised by and admired. Uh, and I hope that other parts of our business, whether it's brokerage firms or development companies or whatever it might be, take a lesson from that because um, it, it was really quite admirable. As you know, I spent 16 years in architecture and construction before <laughs> I started my own firm. And yeah, I'm, that's very encouraging to hear that. Construction companies are built upon the laborers and the supers who are in the field. And those are generally minority groups that are in the field. So it's good to see that they're embracing and investing in those groups. And also teaching their existing employees how to interact with them. That sounds inappropriate, candidly. It sounds remedial. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a better word. It sounds remedial to have a company teaching their own employees how to behave around other minority groups. But why not? Right. When I first asked you to be a guest on the podcast, you mentioned that you wanted to get across three points. And so those were, one, follow through and persistence. Number two, the power of courage. And number three, the power of change. So let's talk about those three things, starting with the power of follow through and persistence. So follow through and persistence feels like an obvious one, but that being said, I think it's really important, not only in new business, but also in building your network. Uh, and the, the most obvious example I have of that is from my personal life and not my professional life. And I call this story how I got a first date with the dude I married. I met my now husband at a party that was hosted at his house. I was invited because of a mutual friend who was attending the party. So our networks brought us together. That's about where the uh, fun part of this story or the easy part of this story ends because the rest of it is the persistence part. So I arrived at the party and my now husband, who I didn't know at all, was entertaining and having a conversation in the corner with some other folks about um, socks, and they were all comparing socks. Is socks a gay thing? Like, you have to wear great socks. It was pretty gay at the time. And he asked to see my socks. I think it was his way of making conversation. Well, I had pretty boring socks on, and as a result- You had very uh, corporate real estate socks on. <laughs> did, actually. I was actually in a suit because I had come from a work event. So that was it. Like, I was no longer of any interest, and that was the end of the conversation. Throughout the rest of the evening, I started to try to engage a couple more times with this person and was pretty quickly dismissed each time. 
And, you know, whether it was by, because of uh, physical attraction or sheer persistence and determination to get a yes, I kept trying and ended up not getting anywhere and left. A couple of days later, I decided to send a thank you note to my now husband and, and thank him for letting me come to his house, even though he didn't know me. And I just said in the note, thanks for letting me come. Uh, I had a good time. I hope to see you again. And if I do, I will wear better socks. And three years after that, and 11 years ago this week, uh, we gave away socks at our wedding. I remember your wedding. It was beautiful. It was the first same-sex marriage at the Boston Public Library. That's right. It was a great party. But we also gave out socks, and it was a testament to persistence. And it relates to professional networks because there are going to be many people in your career, whether it's someone that you're trying to get to know because you want them to be a mentor or it's someone that you're trying to get a new, as a new client who are not going to take your call, who are not going to spend any time talking to you at a party. And rather than just continuing to ring the phone, get creative, send them a note, send them a six pack of beer in the mail, send them an edible arrangements, whatever it takes to get them to call you back. Even if they call you back and tell you that they're allergic to strawberries, they called you and you're on the phone now. I think it's very hard to ignore that kind of effort. Absolutely. hundred percent. And especially if you do it really well. And it's surprisingly easy to figure out people these days, whether it's through getting into their Facebook page or going on to LinkedIn. It doesn't take much to figure out a couple of things that this person finds interesting. Yep. And if you send them one of them, you're going to get a phone call. Yeah. It's almost impossible that you're not going to get it. I call it legal stalking. Listen, if you do not mark your Facebook page as private or your Instagram feed as private, or if you put things in your company bio that I can find, that's fair game to me and I'm going to use it. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So that's persistence. And, and it's, look, again, it seems obvious, but but the key to persistence is not being mundane and boring in how you do it. Um, mention the socks, do something unusual, and I bet the phone rings. I love your husband. He is my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> he is like the male gay version of Julie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, power of courage. You know, I think I addressed this a little bit ago when you walk up to someone at a party and they think you're hitting on them and you just drop the, the gay bomb and then you become best friends. But ultimately, just being courageous in not doing the same thing all the time will, will pay dividends. If you, go to the, if you go to a networking event and you speak to the same five people every time, you're doing it wrong. You're not being brave and you're wasting your money. Uh, go walk over and say hello to somebody that's standing by themselves. Or if you're really brave, walk into a circle of people that are talking and meet four people at once. The worst thing that can happen is that person will not talk to you. And that is highly unlikely. Really Most unlikely. of the time, if you say hello to somebody, they will say hello back. And suddenly you are talking to this person. We as humans need to get over our fear of rejection. It's 100% the human condition to want to be accepted. And yep, when we go to events, we fall into that human condition of what feels normal because we're so afraid of rejection. And I always say to people, go to a networking event and this is your job. Your job is to meet two new people. However you do it, your job is to meet two brand new people. 
Because if you go to an event and you talk to only the people you know, why did you go? Are you paying money to go to an event to talk to people you already know? Yep, exactly. Power of change. I, I think if you're not changing, then you're staying the same. You're doing it wrong, right? You're boring. You're static. All the words to describe not changing are really not words you want to be affiliated with. Right. I've made major changes in my career twice. I've made lots of crazy changes in my personal life, but I'm not going to get into those here. But certainly I've made two major changes in my professional life that were terrifying and extraordinarily profitable. And both involved a career change. And both were because I decided that I was not happy doing what I was doing, that I was bored, that I was not having an impact. And so I changed. And it was expensive at the time and incredibly rewarding and valuable in the long run. And, and I'm still changing, whether it's starting B-Greg or raising my hand to do something that isn't in my job description. If you're not waking up every morning and saying, I am excited to do something today that I am going to do, it's going to be a long road. It's going to be a long career. Before we end our conversation, I would like to leave the audience, the listeners, with some actionable steps that they can take, um, whether it's for themselves or for the companies that they work in, on how we can be better advocates for the LGBTQ community or just better advocates for diversity? Yeah, and I'd leave a call up to action for both. And I'm glad you phrased it that way, Julie. For diversity in general, all of us should be waking up every day and trying to make the best decisions we can make for our business, for our families, whatever it is that we have to decide that morning or that afternoon. If we're living in an environment where it's everybody's the same and it's a homogenous place every single day, the decisions we are making are bad decisions. If you are a retail business, if you are an owner of an office property, if you're designing buildings and you're designing them in an atmosphere of homogeneity. Where the echoes of ideas are all the same. Correct then you are doing a poor job and you are leaving money on the table because you are not representing your constituents. The people who are coming to your shopping center are not staying there or they're not coming back because they don't feel welcome there or they don't feel safe there or it doesn't bring them happiness. So we should all be working as hard as we can to make our businesses more diverse. And that's at every level. And, and I think it starts early. An initiative that I'm seeing that the minority communities make right now is to diversify the C-suite. That is a Im very important initiative. It is an initiative that will fail if we don't start at the very beginning because it is very hard to have someone on your board of directors or have someone that's your CFO if they've never done your business before. Right. So it's very hard to make a homogenous business diverse without bringing people up from the ground floor. So hire an intern, be a mentor, hire a minority, do what you can to make our world less the same and more colorful and more diverse. It, 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 I hate to use the word over and over again, but it's the right word. And you'll make better decisions. You'll make more money and you'll be happier in the long run with your day-to-day -day experience and with the outcome. So that's my call to action for diversity. My call to action for the GLBT community is probably a little bit different because there are lots of things I could tell your listeners to do. The most important one is to just be aware. 
if you're in your office environment, try not to assume that everybody's straight. Try to be open to the idea that this woman you're sitting next to might have a wife. This man you're sitting next to might have a partner. That this person that's talking about his or her child might have had to adopt them because they're part of a same-sex family and, and has had a, a struggle because of that. Just be open to that idea and be aware that that could be happening. I'm not suggesting that you need to change your behavior, but I do think it's important for people to just not assume sameness because it creates an environment of implied hostility. And it makes us all have to come out every single day. And to mm -hmm. use your word, that is exhausting. I've come around to your, your word. I, I think I was using anxiety, but it is exhausting to have to walk into every meeting assuming that you're going to have to clear the air at some point. I think that's great. I think all of that's great. Brian, all thank right. you so much. See you later. Even though Brian and I have been friends for 20 years, I learned a lot in our conversation. I learned that in our society, many people assume that everyone is heterosexual and that the term coming out refers to the lifelong process of the development of a positive gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender identity. The process allows them to live more honest lives and develop more genuine relationships with others. Brian is a role model for others in the corporate real estate industry and business in general. And like Brian said, we should all be working as hard as we can to make our businesses more diverse at every level, from entry-level positions through the C-suite. Brian and I both love big, bold red wines. So during our interview, we were both enjoying large glasses of wine. Mine was the Cabernet Sauvignon from Dow Vineyards and Paso Robles. Dow is the vision and dream of two brothers who grew up in Beirut and moved to America in the early 80s to pursue the American dream. After attending college, starting their own company, taking that company public and selling it, the brothers purchased land in the hills of the Adelaide District in Paso Robles. It is the highest winery on the central coast of California with breathtaking views. I know because I've had the pleasure of visiting there a number of times. What you didn't hear in the podcast is that Brian and I were talking for about uh, 30 minutes when I realized that our session wasn't recording, meaning we were going to have to do it all over again. So we ended up drinking way more wine than we thought we were going to, but it was great spending that extra time together, drinking wine, remembering selfie and skiing and all the things we did 20 years ago that the passage of time had almost made me forget. There are a number of lessons hidden within my interview with Brian, not the least of which is that there is a space in business and in friendships for all of our differences and our uniqueness is what makes us special. Until next week, guys, cheers. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a tip. And remember, you can unapologetically be who you authentically are and still be wildly successful. That's a fact. See you next week on This Shit Works.